So in the year of the Lord, 2015, the United States came face to face with a major opponent. On one side of the battlefield were the valiant Americans, and on the other side stood the elite Frenchmen. Only one side would emerge victorious. Only one would ultimately be crowned king. France was no walkover. A squadron had already shown that they were a formidable side. Having subdued Brazil and Australia only days before this encounter. These opposing sides stood ready to clash on the field. And the setting? Well, the Tom Benson Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. And the occasion? The International Federation of American Football World Cup, IFAF. An international uh, gridiron or a kind of Super Bowl, but at an international level a competition that takes place every four years. America was about to set a record. The final score, 82 to nothing. CBS ran a headline that day that read, USA destroys France 82-0 in football. Why are we playing France? Or did they actually mean, why on this good green earth would America be playing France? Well, it's not like France was a hopeless team or uh, not worth competing with. They had crushed Australia 53-3, to and Australia had previously defeated South Korea with a whopping 47-6. to So it was not to be a walkover. Anyway, whatever the case, the United States emerged victorious, and by the end of the tournament, they had beaten uh, their main opponents, Mexico, uh, Japan, and France, by combined 214 to 36 points. As I stand... Uh, today, the United States of America is the undisputed king of American football, having retained this position for three consecutive uh, world champion championships. But you know, there's something quite fulfilling about being a champion, isn't it? Isn't it? It's almost therapeutic. It doesn't matter what ideologies uh, we hold on to in the moment, whether we are religious or irreligious, uh, easygoing or ill-tempered, introverts or extroverts. Uh, when our team wins, uh, we, the people of, uh, that the, that team represents, uh, tend to feel an, an, ex uh, an uh, excitement, a great sense of excitement, um, and also a sense of unity. Our political leanings or level of education don't matter in that celebratory season. We feel proud, we feel powerful, we feel impermeable, and maybe even irreplaceable. We are one team, one community, one nation under God, aren't we? Now last week, Pastor Andrew walked us through the book of uh, Judges, uh, where Jesus, the angel of the Lord, displays the glory of Jehovah. It's a Christophany we see there, at least more than once. Israel has proven to be a stubborn, rebellious, stiff-necked people. And as was noted last week, the book of Judges ends with these solemn words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But we see this fact brought to our attention at least two more times. In Judges 17, 6, 6, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did 
what was right in his own eyes. What a sad ending to this wonderful book. But we see the manifestation of this tragic situation in Judges 19. Now it came about in those days when there was, a, there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite staying in a remote part of the hill country of Ephraim who took a concubine for himself from Bethlehem to Judea, in Judea. Uh, Pastor Andrew went through that, so I, I won't go uh, through it. But you should take time to read uh, uh, Judges 19, 20 and 21 in your own time, if you haven't already. It's a tragic story, but worth reading. Now, it also highlights the depth to which Israel had fallen. It mirrors, in a truly disturbing way, that incident that, that ultimately led the Lord to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. When Lot invites two guests into his home and worthless men demand to pleasure themselves with them. Unfortunately, in this case, uh, it, the story or the incident ends with the tragic death of the Levite's concubine, which then leads to a civil war in Israel and then a genocide against the Benjamites. In fact, Benjamin is almost wiped out on the face of the earth. Okay, so maybe Israel needed a king, right? In those days when there were no kings. Well, they did get one. In fact, they got many kings. And how did that go? Sadly, even in the period after the judges, in the days when there were kings in Israel, the chosen people proved themselves unfaithful. Yes, David is a man after God's own heart, but unfortunately, he's also an imperfect man of blood. His son Solomon is the wisest of all men. True. But he wastes his life pleasing. He's 1,000 wives and concubines, and steeped in idolatry. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, is the opposite of his dad. He's so unwise. He causes the kingdom to split into the northern kingdom of Israel with Damascus as his capital, and the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, whose throne is in Jerusalem. All of Israel's kings hereafter are wicked. God wrestles with Israel and Judah, calling them to repent. But they won't take heed. Therefore, God scatters them. And the ten tribes that formed the northern kingdom are today known as the lost tribes of Israel. Judah is not any better. Most of their kings are ungodly. But a handful are good, so there's still a, a ray of hope in the south. And this is where we begin our thoughts today, in an era of much global instability, where the concern of kings is to conquer, convert, and conjoin or coalesce. Kings in those days exert power and control by conquering, converting, and conjoining or coalescing or merging the people uh, and the culture. Uh, don't worry, we shall examine these three ideas in a moment. But let's first examine the context in which these events are occurring. The book of Daniel begins with these words. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. 
So we have two kings immediately introduced to us in this verse. But there's a third one, one greater than all, that, we, that shall be revealed to us shortly. So these historical accounts uh, can be a little unclear for the modern era. Uh, so uh, we're probably asking, you know, what's, what's going on here? Why all this chaos? Why all this invasion and counter-invasions? So you see, in those days, there was no international law to govern or direct the conduct of empires and to help provide some form of checks and balances on a global scale. There was no international body or global empire or international court or a kind of United Nations that had been established to help guide the behavior of the various monarchs that were ruling at the time. Each kingdom asserted itself on the global scene and sought to dominate the then known world by attacking and subduing other weaker populations. The conquering king would then enlarge his territory and conscript the men of the conquered armies into his, his own expanding army. And if the conqueror saw it fit, he would either execute the losing monarch and his nobles or make them one of his vassals. In other words, the victor would make the vanquished king a mere vassal, a puppet. In this case, the vassal's life would be spared as long as he remained loyal, paid tribute uh, to, the, to his overlord, and in many cases paid heavy taxes. So we don't have time to go through these details, but it's important to note that these were turbulent times. In fact, this brings us to the first idea, conquer, the conquering kings. By the time the events in Daniel 1 verse 1 are taking place, the northern kingdom of Israel has already fallen. It actually fell well over one century before this occasion. Um, according to uh, 2 Kings chapter 17 verse 6 and uh, chapter 18 verse 9 through 12, Assyria, the largest and most powerful empire at the time, uh, besieged uh, Israel. And uh, that happens uh, around 722 uh, BC uh, before Christ. Okay, 722 years before Christ, Israel uh, is completely uh, destroyed. Israel is never to be restored again because it is Yahweh, God, who is punishing those ten northern tribes for their sin and idolatry and for their perpetual apostasy and refusal to repent, despite the countless warnings that came to them by the prophets, God was done with Israel. And they received the last blow of a century before Daniel's captivity. But then, turn the spotlights on to the pagan nations. And what do we see? God has also, was also displeased with a level of idolatry, barbarianism, and utter wickedness in the Assyrian camp. That was a superpower at that time. And the brutality with which they treated his people Israel in the northern kingdom. When God permitted the Assyrians to conquer uh, the northern kingdom, they, 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 was, they brutalized them and the Lord was going to judge them. So in a few years' time, God's promises through, for instance, uh, Jeremiah, the prophet, uh, will come, will come uh, true. He will judge Assyria and effect his wrath and vengeance upon, upon them. Now, isn't that comforting? 
God is no respecter of persons. He's no respecter of nations. Even though he sometimes permits wicked men to rule over his people in various areas of human endeavor, he does reserve a day for the judgment or punishment of the wicked. But I, I digress. Our focus today is on the southern kingdom of Judah. And to understand these events a little more clearly, I propose that we take a couple of step back, steps back in history. In around 640 BC, King Josiah begins to reign over Judah, the southern kingdom. Uh, that is approximately 82 years after the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. 82 years have passed, and the hourglass is quickly running out of sand for Judah. At 16 years of age, Josiah is converted, and he begins to seek the God of his father, David. And the northern kingdom is, doesn't exist at this point. Josiah is animated and begins to purge or to purify the kingdom of Judah and its capital, Jerusalem, destroying all the pagan shrines, the Asherah poles and the carved images, as well as the cast images, or the carved idols and cast images. A year later, in 627 BC, Prophet Jeremiah's ministry begins. We are told that the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah, and he begins to warn Judah and its last five kings that Judah is just as rebellious as a scattered northern kingdom, which he, God, destroyed through the Assyrians. Judah is rebelling against God. She, too, is apostate. And God will punish her by allowing foreign kingdoms to invade and destroy her. And how does God achieve this? That same year, the year, Jeremiah of, uh, the year of Jeremiah's prophet, when Jeremiah's prophetic ministry begins, the king of the mighty Assyrian Empire, King Assur Pinapal, dies. And now with his sudden death, he leaves the empire in a state of chaos, utter chaos. Assyria will never be the same again. It's the superpower, mind you, at this point. But it will never be the same again. Assur bin Apal is the last of the great kings of, of, of Assyria, which is now subject to the wrath of God. So here is a scenario. To the east, the Assyrian Empire is disintegrating, and uh, the Neo-Babylonian Empire has not yet been formed to replace the tumbling Assyrians. Egypt, on the other hand, is still recovering from Assyrian dominance to the west. Uh, Assyria had dominated them, but they've kind of formed an alliance uh, between Egypt and Assyria, and in time they, they want to help each other. And so Egypt is worried that the power vacuum in Assyria will destabilize the entire region and ultimately threaten Pharaoh's, Pharaoh Nico's throne. Despite this regional turmoil, Back in Jerusalem, all is well. Judah is still able to enjoy stability under King Josiah without the need for any outside assistance, at least for the time being. Enter King Nebopolassar. 
He is the father of Crown Prince Nebuchadnezzar, who will be at the center of our message today. Nebuchadnezzar seizes the throne in Babylon, which had until this point been ruled by the Assyrians. The Assyrian Empire is beginning to fall. In 612 uh, BC, Nebuchadnezzar launches an attack and Assyria's capital, Nineveh, falls to the Babylonians. The Assyrian monarch at the time, King Ashur uh, Ubalit II, flees to Haran uh, along with some Assyrian survivors. Now let me just chip in a moment here. And uh, I want to emphasize this central point. Everything that has so far occurred on the international scene has been foretold by, the pro by prophets like Jeremiah, like Nahum, or by prophet Zephaniah, who in chapter 2 of the book that bears his name, warns of pending judgment. Not only against the people of Judah, but against the nations around them. According to Zephaniah, Assyria would face destruction and desolation because of their wickedness and the maltreatment of the Jews of the northern kingdom of Israel. Let us take note, therefore, that our sovereign God is the one who is ruling over the nations. It is he who orchestrates everything and determines the end from the beginning. Nothing we have so far discussed is occurring by mere happenstance or by mere coincidence. God is not biting his fingers, and I say this reverently, wondering what will come out of this. No, he is in full control. Now back to the account. Babylon is now planning to advance uh, onto Haran. In his desperate attempt to restore Assyria's fortunes, King Ashur Ubalit II tries to protect Haran from invasion. Having secured the help of Pharaoh Necho, the great king of Egypt. Thus, in 609 BC, the Egyptian army marches northward towards Haran. Unfortunately, this rescue mission is delayed and therefore thwarted because King Josiah decides to confront uh, Necho, uh, Pharaoh Necho, at Megiddo. Pharaoh warns Josiah that it is the Lord who has sent him to rescue Haran. But Josiah doesn't believe him. He brushes that aside and engages in a battle against the Egyptians. In 2 Kings 23 verse 29, Josiah ends up fatally wounded on the, battle, on the battlefield. And he dies later in Jerusalem where he's given uh, the burial, a burial befitting a king. By the time Pharaoh Necho proceeds with his mission, the Babylonians have already occupied Haran, thus pushing the Assyrians to Karchemish. Despite his unsuccessful attempt to take Haran, Pharaoh at least manages to create a buffer, a buffer and prevent the Babylonians from marching past Haran down towards Palestine. Okay, so now we're inches away from the account in the book of Daniel. But we must begin our thoughts today uh, with the last five kings. You see, despite Josiah's remarkable reforms, the people of Judah only implement them superficially. 
Theirs is a skin-deep piety. The adjustments they make under Josiah are merely cosmetic. And God knows that it won't be long before they rebel against him once again. And indeed, soon after King Josiah's death, the people reveal their true colors and return to the abominations of Josiah's wicked forefathers, such as Manasseh and Amon and Amon. Therefore, God, through his prophet, pronounces calamity on Judah. And so here is the rest of Judah's history. Josiah has, has uh, uh, four sons. Uh, one of them dies, so we'll not consider him here. Jehoahaz is his third-born son. He appears first here, but it will make sense as we go along. Uh, he's got another son called Jehoiakim, or Eliakim, and then Zedekiah. And Jehoiakim uh, has a son called Jehoiachin. These are the last five kings of Judah. So after the death of, the, of Josiah, the people appoint Jehoahaz, that's Josiah's third-born son, to replace his father. It's uh, possible that they bypass the older son, Eliakim, because he seems a little too pro-Egypt. Uh, so it is my, this is my suggestion, and, uh, uh, but it's because it's not immediately clear why they go to, to Jehoahaz. Jehoahaz only uh, reigns for uh, three months. And he is punished because of his wickedness. And after his death, the, th the crown is then passed on to Jehoiakim. And he's, he's the person we'll be focusing on in a, in a moment. From Jehoiakim, who rules for 11 years, then the crown is passed on to Jehoiachin, his son, who only rules for three months. But after his death, his uh, miserable death, uh, the, the Zedekiah becomes king, and he rules for 11 years. So it's an interesting pattern we see. Three months, 11 years, three months, 11 years. Yet all four prove unfaithful and unreliable. Now remember the tools um, we said uh, kings in those days used to, to dominate. Conquer, the point we've just been examining. Convert and coalesce, coalesce or conjoin. So let's examine the second part or, or strategy used to control and dominate entire societies. Uh, let's start with the newly appointed king of Judah, Jehoiakim, and then slide into the book of Daniel. As you know, that's not his original name. His name was Eliakim. That's the name his father gave him. This is a beautiful name. It means God, or Eli, raises up, or El raises up. However, Pharaoh Nico renames him, and this is a it, it, this is what kings did to show that I am your Lord. I'm over you. So he gives him the name Jehoiakim, or Jehoiakim, which means Jehovah or Yahweh raises up. So Judah should not rest under the false assumption that all, all is well. 
But it is remarkable that Pharaoh Nico acknowledges Yahweh, maybe because the Lord had interacted with him on his way uh, northwards. Uh, Jehoiakim is pro-Egypt and even agrees to serve as a vassal, of, uh, a vassal to Egypt, uh, which he faithfully does from 609 to 605. As Pharaoh's puppet, he agrees to tax the Jews heavily and sends money collected uh, to his overlord down to, towards, to, to Egypt. So the wealth of Israel is going down to Egypt. Do you remember that there was a time when Israel plundered Egypt on their way out? Now, can you imagine that they're paying tax and all that wealth is going back to Egypt? Think about this for a moment. Judah is paying tribute to Egypt. And like I said, only a few centuries ago, they were delivered from slavery in Egypt, where they paid tribute to Pharaoh by the sweat of their brows. Is this whom Judah is now happy to serve? Why is Jeconiah quick to depart from the word of God? Why? Isaiah 3, 31, verse 1 to 3 warns, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. Now the Egyptians are human and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. So the Lord will stretch out his hand in judgment, and any helper will stumble, and the one who is helped will fall, and all of them will come to an end together. Dear friends, when we depart from the Lord, when we reject the holy word and embrace our small idols, we always end up bowing to the evil one, or serving our appetites, or flirting with the world. When leaders in, our, in, our home, in the home, parents, teachers in school, professors in college, bosses at the office, national leaders give themselves over to, a de to, to depravity, the consequences are dire. Satan is not a good master. He's the very embodiment of evil. He's a hard taskmaster. He will tax you heavily and ex extort you because he only comes to steal, to kill, and ultimately destroy you. For in the end, you will only incur the wrath of God. So Daniel, Hananiah, and Mishael, uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are learning these truths in real time. Young lads that they are, they probably, they probably remember the, the word of God that came to them through Deuteronomy 28, verse 64. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the, the other end of the earth, and there you shall serve other gods, wood, uh, the wood, wood and stone, which you or your forefathers have not known. So let's get back quickly to the Babylonian conquest. Remember, the Assyrians have so far taken refuge in, in Karchemish. However, their haven of refuge only gives them a false sense of security. Nebuchadnezzar, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, decides to march to Karchemish. He defeats the Egyptians there. He's such an effective general that he pushes them all the way back to Egypt. And in the third year of Jehoiakim, uh, we see that uh, his allegiance now will shift to Babylon because 
the protection he had from, from or the alliance he had with Egypt is over. Daniel and his three friends are taken as hostages in the first deportation to Babylon. Israel has been conquered, or at least besieged, in fulfillment of, Jerem of Jeremiah's prophecy. In fact, in fulfillment of many prophecies. In 12 years' time, uh, Israel will see a greater downturn. So, the second tool that is used to dominate nation is the conversion program. And now the conversion program has been triggered. How, how is uh, Nebuchadnezzar doing it? Whilst in Babylon, the four Hebrew lads are given new names. And they are enrolled into the most prestigious public universities in Babylon in order that they might learn the literature, language, science, and philosophy of the Chaldeans. So there is a program that they are reprogramming, they are brainwashing uh, these, these young men and many others. They are introduced to a new diet, food that is unclean or offered to idols. Like I said, they are given new pagan names. Uh, while Egypt recognized Yahweh when he renamed Eliakim, uh, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't do that. We shall look at that in a moment. Then they, he uh, sterilizes them, compulsory sterilization. Uh, he, what he wants, what Nebuchadnezzar wants, is to deny these men the right to reproduce children that they may bring up in the knowledge and fear of God, but also maybe to protect his other interests. He then uh, conscripts them into the pagan administration. He appoints them into his pagan administration. Uh, no longer are there courtiers in the promised land. Now they must serve an ungodly king the head of an ungodly administration in an ungodly empire surrounded by ungodly people. So Nebuchadnezzar completely obliterates anything that resembles Yahweh. He gives a new name to Daniel. Daniel, which means God is my judge, is now Belteshazzar in honor of the idol Bel. Hananiah, God has favored, is now Shadrach, uh, which is a royal friend of the pagan monarch. Mishael, who is uh, that which God is, becomes Meshach, a guest of the pagan king. Uh, Azari Yah is named Abednego, the servant of the deity Nigo or Nebo. So no longer shall they be reminded of El, of Yahweh, their judge, who has favored and thus far has helped them. Um, Deuteronomy 28 is being fulfilled. The Lord is scattering them. He's punishing them. Now we see that uh, in Daniel uh, chapter 2, um, the, the, the king has this uh, disturbing dream, and uh, the, uh, the, he dreams of this statue, which has a golden head and, and, and a silver body and so on. Um, in chapter 2 then, Daniel uh, reveals what this dream is all about and he explains that the Lord uh, that these, these are kingdoms and yours is, will be the greatest kingdom, the head and uh, everything else that will come after you will be weaker, will be getting weaker but there is a rock that uh, shall come from heaven, cut out in those days, in, in the days of those, of those kings, the God of heaven 
will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed and the kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all kingdoms, but it will, it will itself endure forever. So, of course, referring to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, he will come, he will crush every nation and establish his kingdom. He is the rock. Jesus is the rock. He is the Ebenezer, the stone of help. Um, but King Nebuchadnezzar wants to defy the Lord. He doesn't like the idea that his kingdom will come to an end. So what does he do? He sets up a statue, not with just the head of gold, which means my kingdom won't last forever, but he makes it of pure gold. The whole thing is of gold. He, he's defying the Lord and, and his prophetic instruction. And uh, the Bible scholars place this event at a time when Zedekiah, the king, the last king of Israel, is, uh, has already been deposed. And Israel basically, Judah, sorry, of Judah is, is, is no longer. So Judah and Israel are completely gone. And so Nehemiah feels he has conquered every land, including Israel, and he has also defeated Israel's God, Jehovah. Because not only did he attack Israel and defeat them, but he went and got the articles of silver, of gold, of bronze from the temple. And every time he looks at them, every time he's polishing them, what is he saying to himself? I have defeated all nations, including the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so we see that he is now introducing this new, this third uh, principle, which is conjoining. Once the con con conversion process is complete, Nebuchadnezzar sets up a global religion. He entices the people towards it with the sound of music, of the orchestra, and so on. He says, when you hear this melody, this beautiful music, which is so overpowering, fall down and worship this statue, which symbolizes that my kingdom shall never end. And uh, uh, he reinforces this with a threat of the fiery furnace. So firstly, we note that this is a command. So it's not a suggestion. But notice he doesn't say this is the only true God. He doesn't say worship this statue for it is the only God. No, what he says is, he doesn't say worship him alone. What he says is worship this God. He doesn't care if you still have your other gods. So he's giving people the opportunity to compromise a bit. It's okay, come on. I mean, all you do is you hear the music, fall down, worship, and you're done, you know? So Nebuchadnezzar does not claim that he is the only de deity. But what he does say is you must comply or die. That's the command. But also you notice the immediacy with which this thing is being done. They were there, they, they were to respond immediately. Because the, the, the verse says, immediately you hear at the moment, or immediately you hear the sound, you have to do this. There's a sense of immediacy. You must do it. But the Hebrew men remember what Proverbs 19.2 says. It is not good for a person to be without knowledge. And he who, and he who hurries his footsteps, hers, or as the Amplified Version says, uh, he who hurries with his feet acting impulsively and proceeding without caution, 
or analyzing the consequences sins or misses the mark. So be wary of people who push you into making any major life's decisions in haste or under pressure. We also see that there is action here. They, you must fall down and worship. There's an interesting dynamic here, and I'm glad you've noticed. There's, the subtlety of Nehemiah's move is that he does not command the people to stop worshiping other gods, like I've said. It's, it's even doubtful that he wanted this to be an established religion forever. No. All he asks people to do is just to worship the image and go about your business. Everyone else within an earshot of the orchestra appears to have no problems with this, except these three guys. So what's your problem? And what is the object? Nebuchadnezzar's empire is expanding by the hour. No army can resist him. He has vanquished Assyria in the east. He has subdued Egypt in the south. He has obliterated Israel and destroyed its temple. The articles of gold, silver, and bronze, like I said, are in his possession. Yahweh and his people could not resist the power of, of Nebuchadnezzar. So one of the characteristics of dictators or tyrants is that they are narcissists. They love themselves. They worship themselves. They have a significant, exaggerated sense of their own importance. They regard themselves as special. And that is what Nehemiah is struggling with. He thinks he's so great. He's full of pride. He's pride, prideful. And yet the Nebuchadnezzarian conversion program has not worked on these three young men. Yes, he's, he is a sovereign lawgiver. The command is not coming from ordinary men or courtiers. It's coming from the most powerful man on earth at the time, from the leader of the superpower of those days. But yet, he is still a type of antichrist. He is the representation of that, or, or that movement or that uh, idea that militates against the church and against Christ. But also there is a threat because he says, if you do not do this, you will be punished. Dictators want to be obeyed. They also know how to increase their grip on power. They do this by manipulating the ordinary citizen's emotion. They target the heart and mind. They ensure that they have control over what information people have, what they're allowed to see, hear, watch, and worship. So Nebuchadnezzar has perfected this art. And to achieve this control, he must destroy all his opponents, including these three men. But what do these men do? They begin to reverse that order. Remember, conquer, convert, coalesce, or conjoin. So Nebuchadnezzar asks them, he gives them the chance to give their side of the story. He says, is it true that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods, or worship the golden image. He says or. He doesn't say and. So you have a choice, really. But you don't serve my gods. Okay. Maybe because you believe in Yahweh. But you also don't worship my image. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace. So what he's basically doing is he's justifying his sovereignty. And so... That's what tyrants do. They, they like, they don't want to look brutish or nasty 
in, in the eyes of their subjects, so they fabricate ideologies or religious rights that justify the exalted positions. For example, King Henry VIII created the Anglican Church and made himself the head of that church. And as the head of that church, he then authorized himself to divorce his wife and marry another woman. And that's what he's doing here. He's justifying his tyranny. And so this, uh, uh, what do the Hebrew men do? They respond by causing a reversal of this power and influence. And how, does, how do they do it? One, the three Hebrew men refuse to conjoin or coalesce because truth and error don't mix. They lead Nebuchadnezzar towards biblical conversion, conquering, and then they conquer Nebuchadnezzar's pride through the glory of the Messiah, the third, the, 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 who we shall see in a moment. So very quickly, um, they refuse to conjoin. They say, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego reply, O King Nebuchadnezzar, oh, sorry, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. You don't need a new gospel. You know the truth. Daniel was with you in the previous chapter. And so we don't need to say anything else. And we are not going to mingle with the world anyway. They don't even say, oh, King Nebuchadnezzar. Neither do they say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, live forever, as was the normal way of addressing the king. They're not being disrespectful, but they're telling him, you will not live forever. And if you continue in your sin, you will perish. But then they also lead Nebuchadnezzar towards biblical conversion. How? Because they say, if it's so, God whom we serve is able to deliver us. God, the Messiah, the Savior, he will deliver us. The true king of heaven, the one who is Lord over all, including Lord over you, the one who is orchestrating all these things. He is able to save us. He's able to redeem us. He's able to redeem us not just from your furnace, but from the furnace called hell. He will re redeem us. He will deliver us. He will deliver us from your hand, O king. When you pass through the waters, perhaps this is what was going on in their minds. I will be with you uh, and through the rivers, though not overflow. You, when you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. That's probably what is going on in their minds at the time. So Nebuchadnezzar is filled with wrath. In fact, it says the, the word, the, the impression we're given, he's so angry that he loses his mind. He commands that this furnace should be heated seven times over. It doesn't even make sense because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will die before they even enter the furnace. Because what do we see? The valiant men, those nice, hefty, valiant men who are grabbing these men, they've dressed them up in all these clothes and the Bible says they were dressed up in all sorts of garments. Perhaps he wanted to make sure that they are, they're properly torched, properly you know, burnt to death. The, those valiant men, as they are taking Shadrach, Michigan, and Medical, they die. They don't even, they die before they, you know, before Shadrach, Mishan, and Abednego land in the fire. That's how crazy he's gone. And then what do we see? We are told that they were tied up, they were thrown into the middle of the fire, 
And then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, is astounded. He stands in haste. And he says to his officials, his high officials, was not three men, was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? And they reply, certainly, O king. Look, I see four men lost and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. He is, like, he is angelic. He is like the angel of God. Actually, Nebuchadnezzar is seeing Christ, the king. Remember, Zedekiah, Judah is gone. Israel has been destroyed. Judah is gone. Zedekiah is the last king to ever occupy the throne. The next king to ever occupy the throne will be Jesus. At this point, it's yet to happen. And what, what the Lord is doing here is telling Nebuchadnezzar, I am your king. You are my subject. So do you know what they're doing here? They've reversed that order. They did not intermingle. They did not adopt false religion. And then they are leading Nebuchadnezzar towards conversion. And now who is the one who has been defeated? Who is the one who has been conquered? Nebuchadnezzar. The one who thought that he was so powerful he could destroy these three young men. But no, the Christ who is God over all is the one who has stopped Nebuchadnezzar. And all his power is thwarted. His plans are thwarted. There's a Christophany here. In Daniel 3, 26 to 29, we see that King Nebuchadnezzar's attitude towards God has changed. He's not yet converted. He'll be converted later. In, in, you know, he has to go through serious humility. He goes insane uh, for, for seven years and so on. But now he is completely defeated. He was defeating nations. He was converting them and then forcing them into his religion. And now the men rejected his religion. They've drawn him to a point where he's converted or changed his view of the Lord. And now he knows that the one, that rock that crushed that statue, that, crushed, that crushes all kingdoms, is what reigns over all. God himself, Jesus himself, is the king that is defeating his enemy, that has defeated his enemies. Jesus is the fourth man in the fire. He is the Messiah. He has conquered sin, Satan, death, and the grave. And now he is the one, the mighty warrior, Jesus. He's the one converting souls all over the world, building his eternal kingdom. And what does he do? He conjoins, baptizing and teaching. Teach them all things. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them and teaching them. In the, so he, we are, that we may be joined to one another in the body of Christ. So now Nebuchadnezzar's worldview is beginning to change. Who is the true king? Who is the true conqueror? It's not the American football team against France that we saw at the beginning. It's not Nebuchadnezzar over his kingdom. It's not any other kingdom. The true king, the true kingdom that is reigning over all 
is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your love. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your word. We thank you, dear Lord, that in that fire, the fourth man appeared. And he appeared. He looked like the Son of God. And when these three men were brought out of the furnace, they found that nothing had harmed them. Not even the smell of smoke was on their bodies. Their hair was not singed. Everything was perfect. And this gives us joy and hope because we know that you, O Lord Jesus, are the true king. You triumph and reign over all. And we can trust you. We don't need to fear the future. We don't need to worry about what will happen tomorrow because you, O Lord Jesus, are on the throne, ruling over our hearts, conquering us, dear Lord, and drawing us into your kingdom as your servants, servants of righteousness, slaves to righteousness. So bless us, Lord, and bless us as we part one from the other for the glory of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.